it's an output measure. If you look at the financial success of Amazon and the, the stock, I own 16% of Amazon. Um, Amazon's worth roughly a trillion dollars. That means that what we have built over 20 years, we have built $840 billion of wealth for other people. And that's great. That's how it should be. You know, I believe so powerfully in uh, the ability of entrepreneurial capitalism and free markets to solve so many of the world's problems. Not all of them, but so many of them. The founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, is the world's richest person. He has seen his fortune swell by $75 billion so far this year to a record $189 billion due to the COVID-19 pandemic's online shopping boom. Bezos insists that free markets help to solve many of the world's problems. But as his wealth and that of many other billionaires continues to grow, millions of people have been thrown out of work and, according to the World Bank, Almost half of humanity is living on less than $5.50 a day. Welcome to LSEIQ. I'm Joanna Bale and this is the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. In this episode, I ask, can we afford the super rich? As COVID-19 strikes the world, millionaires like us have a critical role to play in healing our world. No, we're not the ones caring for the sick in intensive care wards. We're not driving the ambulances that will bring the ill to hospitals. We're not restocking grocery store shelves or delivering food door to door. But we do have money, lots of it. Money that is desperately needed now and will continue to be needed in the years ahead as our world recovers from this crisis. Those are the words of a group of 83 of the world's richest people who have signed an open letter calling on governments to permanently increase taxes on them and other members of the wealthy elite to help pay for the economic recovery from the COVID-19 crisis. They include Ben & Jerry's ice cream co-founder Jerry Greenfield, Disney heir Abigail Disney, British screenwriter and director Richard Curtis and the Irish venture capitalist John O'Farrell. They and other organisations like Oxfam insist that many governments are fueling inequality by massively undertaxing corporations and wealthy individuals, leaving less money for vital public services like healthcare and education. And these policies hit the poor the hardest. But some politicians, particularly those on the right, believe that low taxes are the best way to boost economies and improve people's lives. If you run all the budgets in a race called the high taxation stakes, I am glad to say that conservative budgets don't come in any of the first four places. By lowering everyone's tax rates all the way up the income scale, each of us will have a greater incentive to climb higher, to excel, to help America grow. We're working to give the American people a giant tax cut. It will be the biggest cut in the history of our country. Paul Krugman is a Nobel Prize winning economist and a New York Times columnist. He's also the Distinguished Professor of Economics at the City University of New York and a former LSE academic. I spoke to him in February, just before the start of the pandemic. 
So, Paul, in your new book, Arguing with Zombies, you talk about the zombie ideas or myths that dominate the debate about some of the great political issues of our time. And you devote one section to the zombie idea on taxing the rich and say it's the most persistent of all. Can you explain what you mean by that? A zombie idea in general is an idea that should have been killed by evidence. It has no business surviving given how, how... clearly has failed in practice, but in fact still refuses to die, just keeps on shambling along, eating people's brains. And in U.S. politics, for sure, the most persistent, dominant zombie is the idea that cutting taxes on rich people has magical effects and actually causes the tax cuts to pay for themselves because you get such an economic boom. Uh, Has failed again and again and again, but it is effectively official doctrine for one of our two major political parties. Do you think they are knowingly being dishonest or do some of the Republicans believe it? I think there's a level of doublethink that is what mostly prevails. There are not a whole lot of people, even in politics, who sort of twirl their mustachios and they think to themselves, I'm evil, although I suspect that there there are a few people in in the current Republican Party who are like that. But the point is they don't the question of whether it's true or not hardly enters the picture. The point is that it's um, to be a Republican in good standing, you must pretend to believe it. And I don't think they kick the tires on that on that belief very much. Okay. And you mentioned um, the Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and how she advocates a tax rate of 70 to 80% on very high incomes. And she's portrayed as flaky and ignorant. And I think a lot of people would be quite shocked that she's advocating that level of tax. But you're very much in favor of the idea. Well, I recognize the number immediately because the number actually comes from work by Peter Diamond, uh, who has a uh, Nobel laureate, one of our perhaps the world's leading expert in public finance, who uh, attempted to estimate, along with Manuel Saez, the optimal tax, the you know, what is the optimal top tax rate? And it's a it's a bit of an academic argument, but the point is actually he came out with seventy three percent as the optimal top tax rate, and uh, some other estimates put it a little bit higher. So she was actually fully in line with the academic literature, partly I think because she actually did talk to some people like like Joseph Stiglitz about about taxes. So that tells you something about the state of our political debate, something that, in fact, the most mainstream of economists consider sensible uh, is viewed as being beyond the political pale. And I think you say also that the Republican Party prefers economists who are obvious frauds? Yes. The economics profession is rather center-right compared with, say, sociology, you know, compared with other social sciences. Um, Economists tend to be somewhat more conservative. And so there are a lot of people who are um, certainly to my right, uh, politically, who are also reasonable analysts, reasonable economists, uh, many of whom would love to serve in public office or advise the Republican Party in Congress, they're not wanted. The Republican Party wants the hacks. They want the people who are uh, advocate completely flaky, fraudulent ideas and also who are uh, essentially professional as I say, who are professional conservative economists as opposed to being conservative professional economists. You also say that uh, you have to look at who benefits from tax cuts to the rich. Can you explain that idea of you know, why they're so keen on it and why it's become a bigger and bigger issue for them? First of all, the question, who, who advocates this zombie idea that tax cuts uh, for the rich are, are magical? It comes out of a network of media organizations, think tanks, or maybe that should be think with scare quotes around it, tanks, and um, politicians who rely upon campaign contributions. And if you ask, you know, what 
what share of that complex of people supporting the zombie idea are effectively on the take from billionaires? The answer would be all of them. It's it's all supported by by people who have a huge financial stake. If you're a um, someone with an income of, of hundreds of millions a year, then cutting your tax rate is worth a lot of money to you, and it's well worth it to throw some money at institutions that will keep that idea in circulation, no matter what the evidence may say. Andy Summers is Associate Professor of Law at LSE and a tax expert. He is currently part of a multidisciplinary project examining the pros and cons of introducing a UK wealth tax, the results of which will be put to government. I spoke to him over Zoom during lockdown and asked him if the economic consequences of COVID-19 will inevitably result in higher taxes on income and wealth. No, I don't think that's inevitable because in the end it's always a political choice. It might be helpful actually to break this down into stages, I think. So, of course, at the moment we have very much increased public spending, lower revenues because people are currently out of work. um, And so that's um, resulting in higher public debt. So I think the first question is, are we concerned about that rising public debt? Um, That's really a question, I think, for a macroeconomist. But if politicians are concerned, and I think many of them are, then there's clearly a choice about um, whether to deal with that through more public spending cuts, as we saw during austerity, or alternatively through tax rises. And my impression is that amongst the electorate currently, there's just no appetite for further spending cuts. And so that does imply tax rises of some kind. So then we get to the sort of third question, which is if we're going to have tax rises, how should they be distributed? Um, And on that, I think there have already been some signs even before this crisis of a shift towards um, favouring higher taxes on wealth. Um, You can see that for, for example, the reforms to capital gains tax in the March 20 budget before coronavirus, the Conservative Party effectively increased the taxes on the wealth of very rich entrepreneurs through scaling back the availability of something called entrepreneurs relief. So I think there is a move there already towards um, higher taxes on wealth that's been countenanced by this government. And it seems plausible to me that um, COVID-19 will accelerate that trend. But as I say, it is always a political choice. But strategies for tax reform frequently rub up against claims that um, the rich would leave the country, invest less, be less entrepreneurial and wealth would be moved offshore. Is this really the case? I think on the one hand, it's clearly true that the rich are highly responsive to the tax system. We've lots of evidence um, on that overall. But there we need to be really careful, I think, to distinguish between two quite different types of response. So uh, what people tend to think about are some of the things that you listed, like changes in investment or migration. Those are what we might call real responses. So people actually doing things differently in the real world as a result of the tax. But a lot of the responses that the rich are able to engage in are what we might instead call artificial responses or essentially exercises in paper pushing where you're able to recharacterize exactly the same activity in a different way, account for it differently and therefore get 
advantageous tax treatment. And those sorts of artificial responses, um, I think, are often mainly what's going on when tax changes on the rich are imposed. And so I think it's really important uh, as tax policymakers not to um, conflate these two. It can be true that the rich are very responsive to taxes, um, but not necessarily the case that that's because they are very ready to leave the country or to invest less, but rather because often they have very good accountants that enable them to, um, for example, convert income into capital gains um, or otherwise recharacterize forms of remuneration to pay less tax. And I think those are the types of response that we need to be paying much closer attention to in designing tax policy. Some of the highest tax rates in the UK and the US came in the years after the Second World War, which, of course, followed the Great Depression of the 1930s. It was only in the 1980s, with the advent of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, that major tax cuts for the rich were introduced. I asked Paul Krugman what effect the post-war tax regime had in the US. Only a few people paid them, but they were very high. In fact, during the Eisenhower years, the top tax rate was as high as 91%. Now, even I don't advocate that. I think that was probably a little bit overshooting. But the fact of the matter was the tax rates were really, really high. We, we think that the average effective tax rate on the top 0.01% was something like 70%. Um, at, it's half that now. And, you know, the economy, that was the best generation of economic growth that the United States has ever experienced. Broadly based incomes for just about everybody doubled over the course of a generation. So we've seen it. We, we've seen the, the past and it worked. And it was the past was one in which rich people paid much higher taxes than they do now. And also more recently, you say Clinton and Obama raised taxes, but the economy didn't suffer. That's right. Obama doesn't get enough credit, uh, actually. He did more to uh, undo some of these tax cuts than people realize. And the effective tax rate on the 1% um, under Obama went up quite a lot, went up back to pretty much where it was before Ronald Reagan. Uh, and the economy did fine. And of course, Clinton raised taxes in 1993, and there were widespread predictions of economic disaster. And the Clinton economy was the was the strongest economic growth that we've had since that great post-war generation. You say when Trump gave major tax cuts to corporations and the wealthy in 2017, and you called this the biggest tax scam in history. Why was that? The thing about this was, first of all, it was large. The, the the Trump tax cuts were a lot of money, probably not quite as big as the as relative to the economy as the Reagan tax cuts, but more obviously just tax cuts for corporations were at the core of it, and the whole claim was that corporations would use this money to raise wages and to um, undertake large new investments, and none of that happened. The areas that were targeted by the tax cuts happen to be precisely this, the weak spots in the economy. We, business investment has been falling. All of that money was used to buy back stock, not to actually invest in plant. And of course, wages, uh, workers saw none of it. So this was a, a, a huge fraud with a bunch of smaller frauds embedded in it, by the way. There, there just turned out to have been a lot of new opportunities for tax cheating opened by that law. Andy Summers says his latest research on the role of capital gains has shown that the UK has more in common with the US than Europe in terms of the share of wealth that currently goes to the top 1%. A capital gain means basically the increase in the value of something that you own. So it could be some artwork or 
more often actually shares in a company um, or a house. And so when you sell that asset, the gain is said to be realized. Um, so basically what that means is a realized capital gain is kind of the profit that you cash in when you sell something for, for more than you paid for it. And the work that I'm doing currently is looking in some detail at those capital gains um, because they're currently not captured in our picture of UK inequality through official statistics. So our income statistics currently only count as income receipts that are taxed under the income tax. But because capital gains tax is a separate tax, um, capital gains end up going missing from those statistics. Uh, and that's particularly important for our picture of inequality in the UK because it turns out that it's actually those at the very top of the income and wealth distribution who have the most capital gains. So by ignoring these in our statistics, we're actually getting a slightly misleading picture of the total resources that these individuals actually have. Um, so what we've done using access to um, tax records through HMRC, the tax authority, we've been able to um, look at these capital gains directly and essentially add them in to the incomes of the very rich and to everyone else and to see what that what that does to our picture of firstly who is at the top so is it the same individuals that look like they're at the very top of our um, economy when we include capital gains and also to see how that changes the picture of what we call the top 1% share, so the share of all resources that goes to the 1% richest in society and how that's changed over time. And the big findings that we get from this is that actually the top 1% share is much higher when you include capital gains. It goes up from around about 13 or 14% of the total when you're looking at income only up to around 16 percent so that actually brings the UK closer into line with um, the experience in the US compared with continental Europe but also potentially more importantly it also shows that that top one percent share has been rising over time during the 2010s. So the top one percent of UK adults that's around 500,000 people receive 13 to 14 percent of all income that's slightly more than in France or Germany where the top 1% receive around 11 to 12% of all income, but substantially less than in the US, where the top 1% share is 20%. However, when we include taxable capital gains, the UK's top 1% share measures much higher at around 16 to 17%, making top-end UK inequality look more similar to the US than to continental Europe. The conventional story of austerity was that no one really got better off during the uh, fallout from the last financial crisis. But actually, it turns out that that's partly because those at the very top um, were able to receive their remuneration in different ways that weren't being captured in our income statistics. So when you include capital gains in that measure, actually, it turns out that the incomes of the rich were increasing even through the period of austerity. And I think that's quite a striking finding, especially as we go into making choices about who should pay for the coronavirus crisis. The super rich don't just rely on top accountants and sympathetic politicians to help them protect and accumulate wealth. It's also about keeping it in the family, according to Luna Glucksberg, 
a research fellow at LSE's International Inequalities Institute. She is an urban anthropologist who has focused on how elite families forge dynasties through long-lasting marriages and an emphasis on children's education, broader socialisation and eventually their own appropriate class-compatible marriages. Just as economic capital needs to be protected and nurtured, so does the family line and the role of women is key. I asked her why. The project at the beginning was um, about finding out something rather different. It was about the effects of wealth on wealthy areas in London. Um, it was different because normally we look at the effects of poverty. So in that sense, it was quite innovative. In doing that, I met women and I started to realise that I was meeting them at home rather than in offices, which is not to say that there weren't professional women and very successful women that I interviewed, but a lot of them were at home and I was curious about that. And so that was when I started thinking about issues of, of gender around my research. And so you interviewed about 100 people um, living and working in London's wealthiest neighbourhoods. What sort of areas did you go to? The areas were from Chelsea into Notting Hill, Mayfair, Belgravia, Holland Park, Hampstead. And then there was one that was a suburban area in the western suburbs. What I was curious about were the women who had had very, uh, well, brilliant um, academic careers and who had then transitioned into high-flying um, industry roles and who had decided to stop working when they'd had children. I was quite curious about that. And the way they described it and the way they made sense of it was a very rational choice to privilege and allow their husbands uh, to develop their own careers. So in that sense, it wasn't something that those women had imposed upon them. It was an understanding that in order for his career to develop as they both wanted it to, somebody needed to be, I think one put it as somebody needed to look after the home front. Luna also interviewed professionals who had close contact with these elite women, from top private school teachers to high-end beauty therapists and yoga instructors. The way the teachers described it was an absolute commitment to their children having the best grades and being the best they could possibly be at school, which sometimes actually resulted in very serious pressures put on children who might find it quite difficult to cope with the expectations. There's a line between supporting and pushing. The ultimate aim, I suppose, was to make sure that in a context that is competitive and hierarchical, these women were making sure that their children were going to the right prep schools and then the right schools and then the right universities. They were doing the labour to ensure that the academic and social careers of their children would develop as they wanted them. The work that they perform might not be the paid work in a bank or in their own firms. They might not be running businesses, but the roles they perform are absolutely crucial. The amount of work that goes into the socialization of the children, into the taking care and making sure that literally everything runs so that his career can progress as it should, is not to be underestimated.
I asked Luna if she thought the women, particularly those who had given up their own successful careers, were happy to take what many would regard as a submissive role to their male partners. I'm not sure I would say submissive because it seems to me it's just a different way of wielding power. The women that certainly I have met, I wouldn't describe as powerless or not full of agency over their own lives and the lives of the family to to, a, to an extent. But I think, especially in dynastic families, it's about understanding what your role is and what the boundaries are within which you can operate. And within those boundaries, you can do a lot. But you need to understand that, I suppose, and this, this doesn't just go for women, to be honest. It's about understanding that the family comes first. And so therefore, individuals, well, they have to understand that and they have to prioritize the family in terms of the generations to come. So if the stability of the family is what is to be achieved, then individuals' feelings and needs have to come second. And is that ever vocalized, do you think? Or is that just one of those things that everybody recognizes and just gets on with it? It seems to me that it's only ever spoken about when it goes wrong which is the case for most assumptions, which is why the Meghan and Kate thing is quite a, an illustrative case of when it goes wrong. Luna is referring here, of course, to Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton, who both married into one of the world's most high-profile, super-rich dynasties, the British royal family. While Kate appears to have flourished in her role, Meghan has clearly had a more troubled time. Earlier this year, she and Prince Harry announced their intention to step back as senior members of the royal family and move to North America. From what I have observed and researched, the way in which women are supposed to understand very clearly and very early on what their role is in terms of being mothers and looking after the children and looking after what I described as the home front was quite clearly embodied by Kate Middleton, who seems to be able to do no wrong. She, she, she does what she's supposed to do and what's expected of her, and she seems to do it very well. It seems to me that a woman who has been a professional actress, who has had a career, who was brought up probably in a very different environment, might find it very difficult to fit into a scheme which is from most of us, would look very restrictive and confining in terms of what you can do or be as a person, let alone as a woman. Which is not to say that the racism she encountered at the hands of the press is undeniable. So dynasties are a way of protecting wealth and, of course, power. People of America have no quarrel with business. They insist only that the power of concentrated wealth shall not be abused. That was a speech by President Roosevelt, who sought to limit the concentration of wealth and its transmission from one generation to another through sharply progressive income taxes and high inheritance taxes, as the US faced economic devastation during the Great Depression of the 1930s. Paul Krugman believes that, above all else, the rise in inequality is down to shifts in power over the last 40 years. It's about power relations, mostly. It's about the um, decline of the various forces that limited the extent to which 
CEOs could pay themselves enormous incomes. It's about the decline in the bargaining power of workers, uh, that um, the decline of unions and, and in general of, of, of any kind of collective action on the part of, of the workforce. There was a time when poverty in the U.S. was widely regarded as being a, an inner city problem, particularly a problem of non-white inner, inner city residents. And, and it was almost dogma that the problem was cultural that these were just people had bad behavior and they had collapsing families. And uh, there were a few people, uh, sociologists like uh, William Julius Wilson, who said, you know, if you really look at it, the it's the economics that's driving the culture, not the other way around, that what happened was that good jobs disappeared. And that's when families start to fragment. And if you wanted to do a controlled experiment on that, what you would do is say, let's take away job opportunities from a bunch of rural white people and see what happens. And sure enough, we did, and it has. Uh, the, we've seen a, um, a collapse of families, collapse of, of social order um, in much of the heartland of the United States uh, as, the, as the good jobs have disappeared. So, of course, there are still people saying, oh, and this is really about morality, but this is getting, this is implausible now. At this point, you have to say, we, we've, we've run this, this experiment a few times here, and it really is it's the economy. It's the economy, stupid. It's the economy that's driving these things, and the the cultural things that you see, uh, distressing as they are, you know, deaths of despair from opioids and all of that, are following on from the economics. I think you said Roosevelt talked about taxing the wealthy um, and how you shouldn't let people get too wealthy, but now that seems to be very much not uh, an accepted idea. Well, we had a, a long period of conservative dominance in U.S. politics, which, uh, was, which was actually based upon the ability of plutocrats to exploit other issues. And in the United States, above all, it's race. I mean, the rightward turn in America was a obvious and direct uh, consequence of the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Basically, you've got white working class voters, significant number of white working class voters, to vote against their own economic interests because you were able to tell them that all these public programs that helped people like them were actually programs that helped you know, those people, people who didn't look like them. And so that's really where, where it comes from. It's, it's all at some level, uh, certainly in America, everything, everything comes back to race. The enormous power of the super rich is even threatening democracy, according to Paul. I mean, it's, it's funny. We used to be free somehow to say things like this much more clearly than is usually allowed now in, in the U.S. political scene. And if you go back to the early 20th century, you would find mainstream politicians saying, if there are men big enough to own the government, they will own the government. Uh, well, that's still true. And if you have a situation in which uh, a handful of people with enormous resources are in a position to buy political influence through some combination of campaign contributions, but also um, supporting um, media organizations, disinformation shops, and the revolving door. The fact that uh, lots of people who hold public office are thinking about how they're going to make money after they leave office, um, that is going to undermine and distort democracy. And there's a lot of evidence that, that really, that billionaires uh, specifically are having a remarkably uh, malign effect on the democratic process. As we draw to an end, the question I'm asking in this episode is, can we afford the super-rich? Here's Luna Glucksberg, who refers to the work of the economist Thomas Piketty. The reason why I study 
dynastic families is because I'm interested in how wealth is reproduced. And when wealth is reproduced and maintained at the top, as Piketty has explained in very, very clear terms, and how this happens over time, which is why it is important to look at dynasties and families as they progress over generations and centuries, that wealth is not redistributed through taxation. What is more, dynastic family wealth and capital that is accumulated and then inherited strikes at the core of any meritocratic belief that anyone might hold. If it were possible to make arguments, which I don't subscribe to, but it might be possible to think that somebody earning 500 times as much as somebody else might have something to do with their human capital, their skill, their intelligence. That's an argument that is made. But it would be very hard to justify somebody inheriting the amount of wealth that we're talking about and consider it fair by any stretch of the imagination. So, no, I would definitely say no. Paul Krugman. I don't want to, you know, persecute the individuals especially i don't uh i think we can raise a lot more taxes on them so the the most important thing is not you know don't don't hate the rich just make them pay more taxes so that we can support programs that support the rest of us there is a further case that says that you might even want to push the taxes a bit beyond the point that maximizes revenue because the the wealth of the super rich is a, a malign influence on democracy and again, that's a position that a century ago was actually perfectly standard in American politics. And finally, Andy Summers. Well, if I can turn the question around slightly, I think the super rich can certainly afford to pay more. And that uh, issue is going to be brought into even sharper focus as a result of the current coronavirus crisis, which, as we're already seeing, um, is bringing some existing uh, income and wealth inequalities into sharper focus and highlighting inequalities that already uh, existed. So the question then is how we can um, introduce um, ways in which the super rich can pay more, perhaps through the tax system, in a way that's both fair and, and can be implemented um, in the timescales that we need to respond to this current crisis. But I'm optimistic that that is possible um, and that the super rich can and will pay more in over coming years. Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was produced by Natalie Abbott and me, Joanna Bale. This episode was based in part on the following research. Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics and the Fight for a Better Future by Paul Krugman. Capital Gains and UK Inequality by Aaron Advani and Andy Summers. A Gendered Ethnography of Elites by Luna Glucksberg. Join us next time when we ask, is perfect the enemy of possible? For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSE IQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover. Thank you.